university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and today we're doing another special episode. I got such great feedback from the live episode that we did at the Southwest Popular Culture Association conference that we've decided to do another all play. So today I have assembled my Avengers for this particular superhero episode. On the line with me today, Dustin Dunaway, Chair of English and Communication at Pueblo Community College, Marley Williford, who is a graduate student at Bowling Green State University, Natalie Shepard, who is a doctoral student at Louisiana State University, and returning to us for the first time in season two, Shannon Sindorf, who is an instructor in communication at the University of Colorado Denver and in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. So, welcome team. Hi. Thank you. Great Hi. to be here. Nice. Today what we're doing is we're Hello. taking a look at a whole bunch of things because we have a whole bunch of things coming up in terms of the calendar. Marvel Cinematic Universe Avengers Endgame. Game of Thrones will be premiering in two days, uh, as you hear this, on Sunday. And we, it, we're pretty excited about both of those things. But the thing we really wanted to talk about today is this idea of serialized narratives and binging and marathoning and superhero stories kind of in general. We've got a lot of, a lot of things on tap today. So today's episode is going to be a little bit less present your research in this area and a little bit more scholars roundtable. Let's apply your research and your knowledge to this thing that's happening right now and see where it goes. What I thought I would do is sort of roll a live grenade into the room and let's see who jumps on <laughs> it and we'll, we'll move from there. So binge watching things whether it's a television show or it's a bunch of movies. There's a, an article that I read the other day where there's a company who is trying to pay someone to watch all 32 hours of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a row. In the lead up to the release of Avengers Endgame, you would have to watch all of the films in a row to collect this money. And you have to live tweet them. And you have to live tweet them. So let's start there. What do we what do we think about that? Well, I've actually done that before, not with MCU, but with uh, Lord of the Rings, which is an exercise in masochism. We watched all of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings in a row, all of the like director's cut versions. So it's something like, you know, 12 hours. <laughs> and I was live tweeting most of it. Uh, this is back like when I first first got my Twitter. So there's kind of like this ritual to it. It's definitely, I wouldn't say it was fun. It wasn't fun. It was <laughs> supposed to be. But it's more like the dedication to your love of something that is popular culture and the way that we participate in these activities that are not necessarily fun, but ritualistic and um, almost like kind of worshiping the text in this very religious sort of way. That may sound a little woo-woo, but that is what it felt like, if that makes any sense at all. I actually hear that a lot from a lot of people who binge watch things, that eventually it starts to become an obligation because you started something and you got so far through it, now you have to just see it through. <laughs> it becomes this thing like, <laughs> right. I don't really want to do this. Please stop me from doing this, but I have to finish. So I definitely see some of that as well. 
I think the payment aspect is strange. I don't know if you're looking at the same one I am, but it's cabletv.com and they were paying $1,000 and taking applications. First of all, that's a huge underpayment for the amount of <laughs> you know work and the amount of, of your soul that you're going to have to sell in order to do this. Because I almost feel like if there was no payment, I mean, obviously it's dumb for me to say this because I'm not going to do it, but because you're being underpaid almost feels worse than if you were doing it for free out of a labor of love. Right. I don't know if that's strange. But I also, I have a lot of logistical questions about this. Do you get to pause? Or is the idea that other people are going to be watching the movies along with you, so you're sort of required to live tweet them without stopping? Can you skip certain movies? I guess you can't, that's the whole point. But I mean... <laughs> Are you allowed to sleep? Does this have to be all in a straight line? I, I don't I don't know. Can you negotiate and decide to skip a movie and take a little hit on the pay they're gonna give you? I don't know. There's that, and then there's also the AMC where they're having you marathon all of the movies and then you get to see Endgame an hour early. So I have questions about that one as well. Like, are they going to have showers near <laughs> right. Are they going to wake you up if you fall asleep during Iron Man 3? <laughs> I'm more concerned about the AMC one. Like, can you leave and come back? Yeah, I, I don't know. What if you have to go to the bathroom? What if you want to... I've actually done the Lord of the Rings marathon at AMC before The Hobbit came out. Oh my goodness, yes, please tell us how it works. It's weird. It's really a big party in the theater, at least the one I was at. You were allowed to leave. You got this wristband so you could come back. And Lord of the Rings is only 12 hours, so it's nothing like the 48-hour marathon that AMC is going to run. But there were definitely people sleeping in the theater at a certain point, especially as you got towards the end of Lord of the Rings and people wanted to be fresh for The Hobbit before we knew how much of a disappointment it would be. (laughs) (laughs) gonna say oh my yeah, god and you would go to the bathroom and people would be rubbing themselves down with wet wipes and things it, it was a weird oh, experience but it was a lot of fun it was something i was glad i would i did i don't know that i would want to do it for marvel because that just seems like so much but for 12 hours it was like an accomplishment running a marathon or something it was a challenge hobbit stock <laughs> yeah, it really does feel like a challenge, doesn't it? You think it's going to be... And I didn't do it at AMC. I just did it with a couple of friends, The Lord of the Rings. And it does feel like a challenge. It doesn't... It's not just sitting in the same place for 12 hours. It's really... It's like a dedicated labor, which... I don't know if there's something about just how it feels that makes that harder. Because I've sat and binge-watched 10 hours of Stranger Things before, and it didn't feel the mm-hmm. same. So I wonder if there's something to marathoning films that feels different. Well, and I wonder how much of the entertainment aspect is stripped out mm-hmm. when you turn it into some sort of dare. That's where the sort of collective experience fills that gap to some extent. Like you're not getting the entertainment so much out of the movies. That feels like a job. But it, it was like Natalie said, you know, you're getting sort of a group high. The community aspect of it is sort of cheering you on. But I wonder, bringing it back full circle to what Shannon had offered at the beginning, if the monetary compensation is not enough, not just for the labor involved, but for the amount of enjoyment that is stripped out of the thing, presumably you signed up to do because you enjoyed it in the first place. Right. And so if you think of it that way, if you think of the monetary compensation aspect, you're getting paid $1,000 to not to watch the movies, but to live tweet. Your tweets are then your product. That is what you're being paid for. And that has got to feel like a job. How many hours, again, is it that somebody would have to watch? Let's say 48. So 48 hours of live tweeting. And that is hard. You Not only do you have to just come up with tweets, they've got to be interesting and funny. I mean, that $1,000 seems like a mighty low payment for that kind of work product. And presumably they have to be positive toward the movies. I mean, even the ones that are... Right. You can't just live tweet like, oh, I just had a really good sandwich, I, you know. <laughs> right. right. You can't say Iron Man 2 sucks. You can't be you know. taking them to task. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, in the application, they're also requesting people who have, you know, a social media presence, right? So this is very much like applying right. for a job that you already kind of have. And I think when you do the math, I mean, doesn't it come out to right around $20 an hour? Which... I mean, I guess it's pretty good, but considering you have to stay awake for the whole time, 
and not sleep and keep working on your social media, whatever, it, it seems, it does seem low. It is 42 hours. Well, yeah, when you think about it that way, in terms of hours, it's not bad, but it's, for me, I feel like the work product of the tweets, that's what makes it, maybe I'm injecting my own feelings about how horrendous and soul-sucking this would end up being mm-hmm. <laughs> on the experience itself. I'm sure there are some people that are like, oh, I was gonna do that anyway just as a fun thing to do before Endgame comes out, because there are certainly fans where that's a part of their fan practice. Yeah, and I mean, people are going to pay AMC to do it before the Endgame comes out. But you're not required to put out that stream of tweets and constantly be on. Right, there's a difference between I I really want to do this in preparation for this movie and now I feel obligated to do it because they're paying me to. Right, Dustin, I think that's what I was getting at before. When I said being in a theater with people around and sort of having that community experience, that would be really fun. But having to sit and tweet constantly feels like, I feel like these people will, at least the the live tweeting person, will never be able to watch another MCU movie again. It's like if you work at Baskin Robbins in high school, you know, you can never eat ice cream again for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be the ultimate cruel irony is they let you into this movie an hour early or they say, okay, now it's time for Avengers Endgame. And you're like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do that. It feels very much like that, that by the end of 42 hours of Marvel Cinematic Universe in a row, I wouldn't want to watch Endgame. Right. So basically, the people who are engineering these paid marathons or whatever, I think it's DC (laughs) to try to get people sick of the M so sick of the MCU that they never want to watch another Marvel movie ever again. I wonder if the same is true for the people who are I know several, several people who over the course of this week are attempting to binge Game of Thrones in order to relive the experience. Whereas myself, I watched a 20-minute recap on YouTube to refresh my memory, and I feel like I'm ready to go into it. I don't know that I need to watch every minute of every season of Game of Thrones to get geared up for the last six episodes. I don't know. It depends on what your motivations are. If your motivations are to get all caught up so that you sort of remember everything, then yeah, watching recaps is fine. But I feel like part of why I would be tempted to marathon, I will admit right now, I do not watch Game of Thrones. So I'm, I know, I know. But for with Marvel, the reason I w- would be uh, tempted to marathon and why I've sort of been doing a little bit of that myself is because I feel like I don't want to miss anything. There are so many interconnected pieces and I want to look for all those little hints and winks and nods and those little Easter eggs and see how they all come together at the end, little pieces that I've missed. And I feel like that might be part of why people want to sit there and watch all six seasons or whatever. I also think that people want to do it just to say that they did it, to get some fan clout. True. Which is, Mm -hmm. I think, part of this too. And for a sense of completion, maybe just that sense of when you experience a new one, you're kind of experiencing the whole thing at the same time. Yeah, that's kind of my point with binging all of these things all at once is you get the cohesive story all at once instead of breaking it up. I believe though, two things. Number one, I understand if you've never seen it before, and you're trying to hurry up and get caught up to the crowd, so to speak, so that you can enter into this what is going to turn out to be a huge cultural event so you can enter into it in real time with everyone else. I get that. I do think there's a large piece of of it that is, as Marley says, the cultural and social capital of it, the being able to say that you did it and therefore somehow reap the benefits among your fandom friends of having done that. The phrase Dustin and I like to use a lot when we talk about this kind of stuff is, it is my proof that I am a real fan, whatever mm-hmm. the whatever real fan means in that context. What's to stop you from lying, though? If you've seen them before, who's going to know the difference? The quiz master. The quiz master. <laughs> the quiz master will know. Okay. You will eventually encounter the quiz master, and the quiz master will know. Okay, point taken. But the bigger point for me is... When you binge a thing all at the same time, I don't know that that helps the artifact. Well, especially if the artifact is supposed to be serialized. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what I really mean by that is 
for the most part, series of anything are pretty bad at continuity. And the more of it you watch in a short amount of time, the more those continuity errors begin to jump out at you. Mm. Whereas if I have a week between watching each episode, I can forget some stuff that I don't really need to remember in the first place. And then the story hangs together without them having to be so detail-oriented. I think that's what doomed a show like Lost. Which is when you had to watch it week after week over the course of seven years, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I forgot all these things happen. And so cool. You know, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But then they started releasing DVD box sets and people were watching whole seasons at a time. And then it very quickly becomes apparent they are making it up as they go along because the story doesn't hang together at all. There are massive holes in the story. The same is true or I think people will find the same is true when they binge the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Which, yeah, so it's another reason you're going to destroy it for yourself. You're going to exactly. realize all the things they screwed up, or you right, that they were making it up as they went along, and these things weren't really connected, and we sort of retconned them in or something. Because I promise you, sitting here right now, you don't remember what happened in Iron Man 1. You don't. You you think you remember, which is to say you remember enough to get along with the rest of the story, but but you haven't watched Iron Man 1 since Iron Man 1 came out. I can back you up 100%. I watched Iron Man 1 last night. I did not remember so much of that movie. (laughs) Right. It's like, it's a whole other theme. You remember what you need to remember and you don't have to remember the details, but when you watch it all together at once, Mm -hmm. you realize, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't have noticed all the details. Yeah. Maybe these are better in sort of on a more theoretical main points kind of level. And I can see this with Marvel or with Game of Thrones, which comes out on a weekly basis or Lost. But I think we are moving towards TV that is being produced to be binged, especially things that Netflix is producing right now, where they release the whole season all at once. And it's not as enjoyable if you watch it in a serialized fashion. Mm-mm. If you, I can't remember where I was reading this, but they had two groups and one group watched Orange is the New Black one episode a week and the other group binged it. And the group that was watching one episode a week fell off after episode three and they stopped watching it after that because it wasn't as enjoyable. It's it's actually meant to be consumed as a 10 hour movie, really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Netflix is definitely, they're onto something with how that content needs to be structured to keep people engaged for that long. And time is just like all other elements now that go into film and television. Time is an element of that, right? You need to think about what people are seeing. You need to think about the writing and you need to think about the time that people are spending on it. Because a three hour movie is very different from an hour and a half long movie. Right. Well, and Netflix is doing it on purpose mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think individual directors of movies within the cinematic universe are, or even the way game of Thrones is because mm-hmm. game of Thrones is still designed to be serialized. Right. Netflix shows are designed for you to binge them. Mm-hmm. So they actually rely on you having just seen the last episode. I found this out when we were watching a series of unfortunate events. Mm. Mm -hmm. I watched it too. Which is a fantastic series. It is. Uh, Especially if you have a 13 year old like I do. Yep. Yep. 13 is the target market for that show because it's just sinister enough that it doesn't feel like a kid's show, but it's still got some kid's show elements to it. 11 works too. It's really good. That whole older kid but not quite teenager market is the perfect age group for that show. But what we found out is we had to go back and watch the last episode of the season prior before jumping into each of the new seasons because the show was designed to be watched all in a row. Mm -hmm. So if you came into that show now, you could very easily watch all three seasons back to back to back and get the complete story. But if you took time off, as we did, between seasons one and two or between seasons two and three, it's harder to ramp back up into the story because you had forgotten over the course of the whatever it took them six or eight months to put the new season out what had happened. 
So do we need to start thinking of serialization differently then? So is serialization, each unit is not a show, but a season. And then when you take it that way and you look at this MCU marathon, you think, okay, well, it was serialized. It was just serialized movie by movie. And now basically watching the whole phase one through three or four, wherever we are now, is like watching different seasons, all those episodes of a show, seasons of a show. But what you're saying with where you had to watch the last episode of season one before you could watch season two of series of unfortunate events, then it's not really working that way, is it? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, are they are the creators of these shows conceptualizing serialization in this new way? Or are they just thinking of themselves as creating like eight hour movies that are meant to be individual units in themselves? I think that there's definitely a shift that we're seeing, especially because of Netflix. And even before Netflix, there were DVD box sets of older shows. And those shows were clearly not meant to be watched in that fashion. I mean, really kind of the turning point for that was the X-Files where you have these self-contained episodes, but you also see callbacks to, like there's a larger mythology there. If you go back and watch something like Dallas or Miami Vice, they'll have character actors who show up and they're playing different roles. You know, you'll have like Dennis Farina doing a guest shot and he's a mobster one week. And then a couple of seasons later, they bring him back and he's FBI or something like that. And that's something that would never really fly with fandom today. There would be people on Twitter calling out the creators. Oh, you, you didn't think that we would notice that? So I think <laughs> right. if you look at the 80s and early 90s shows prior to DVD box sets, there was kind of an assumption that we would just forget about things. We would have vague notions. You had no option. You had no other option. But there's a distinction to be made between an episodic program in which there are arcs and something that is truly serialized. Because none of those shows growing up were serialized. And I can tell you from firsthand experience because my wife and I are on this project right now to expose our daughter Mm -hmm. to things we loved when we were kids. So she picks a thing, I pick a thing, she picks a thing, I pick a thing. It's my turn. And so right now I have the DVD box set of all three seasons of My Two Dads. (laughs) I'm going somewhere with this. Trust me. So we are watching through the first season of My Two Dads, which, full disclosure, growing up was my absolute favorite television show of all time. And the thing that I am beginning to realize as we are, you know, six episodes deep in the first season is the story hangs together, but it is very much episodic. Things are happening that are internal to that episode and that episode only. And there's an overarching arc, but people don't really necessarily remember the things that happened. People internally inside the show don't necessarily remember or bring up things that have happened in previous episodes. Even in something like Dallas, where there are these overarching arcs, those stories aren't serialized. Something like Star Trek The Next Generation, or any of the Star Treks really, they have arcs, but they're not serialized. And what I mean by that is a truly serialized narrative functions like chapters of a book. And there's one whole story being told. That's how Netflix shows are working right now. They are working in a very... Umbrella Academy was very much serialized. As opposed to an episodic show on television, which is not necessarily telling one entire story beginning to end. Each season is not its own book-ended narrative. Did you say that even Dallas falls into this pattern? Because, I mean, forgive me, I don't remember Dallas, but isn't that sort of like a soap opera? It isn't the soap opera not really serialized by nature? No, the soap opera is, I would argue, the soap opera is serialized by nature. I would argue something like The Young and the Restless has been telling the exact same story for the last 45 years. It's one giant story. But each show is not, self, it's not really self-contained though. It doesn't so much have an arc. 
there's also kind of a perpetuality to soap operas where it's hard to define an arc for soap opera because it keeps going and as soon as one plot line gets resolved another one gets brought up and these shows are meant to run for very long they're supposed to have an episode especially daytime soaps have an episode every single day so the writing has to be very quick so there's no ending point, you know, natural arc conclusion for the show usually. Right. And for what Chris was saying, I mean, if, if something is serialized, then it's going to have, it's going to have, have a, an arc within a show, but that arc is going to connect. Each arc is going to connect into a bigger story, right? Like chapters in a book. Yeah. But so, something like, but a sitcom, for example, something like My Two Dads, it's, it's, it's almost not connected, really. Each thing is, is pretty self-contained. Right. It's episodic and connected. So what I guess what I'm asking is Dallas, I'm really interested in this question, was Dallas like that? I have no idea. I, you know, I would have to, I would have to go back and watch, honestly. Okay. I think people remember it as being more serialized than it was. That's what I'm thinking because, as well. Yeah, uh, I can remember there was at least one episode where one of the characters decides to run for office. And that they decide that at the beginning of the episode. They run an entire campaign and then the election is at the end of the episode. So, you know, <laughs> within that amount of time, we're talking they've compressed six to eight months but six to eight months don't go by for the rest of the characters like when we pick it up the the following week everything is just kind of reset Mm -hmm. and so there is an well yeah there's an arc right there but there's an arc that's contained within that episode that people refer back to but it's today we would have a very decompressed narrative about that like running that campaign would be something that would happen throughout the entire season uh, (laughs) because that's more realistic so basically chris we all need to go watch dallas all of it (laughs) and come back and record an episode of this podcast talking about this about dallas talking specifically Specifically about just dallas Very relevant cultural topic in 2019. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that made me think about that is, is actually a previous episode from this season on revivals and reboots. And if you compare like the original Dallas that ran for about 13 seasons uh, from the late seventies into the early nineties with the revival that was on TNT, probably about five years ago, that ran for three seasons the narratives are completely different, even though we have many of the same characters. The way that the stories are told is different. So there, there is a change in the way that we tell these narratives, even though we consider the medium the same. I, I think we've got next year's Comic-Con panel. <laughs> Dallas. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. On that note, let's pause for a minute. We'll come back in two and two, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. I want to take a moment to say thank you to all of our listeners, all of the people who download the Deconstruction Workers every two weeks and who are really into what we do. It is you, the listener, who makes all of this worthwhile. I would really like to ask you to take five seconds out of your day to tell a friend about the Deconstruction Workers podcast. Tell two friends, tell five friends. We're trying to increase the reach of the podcast, increase our numbers of listeners, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. So if you enjoy what you're listening to right now, if you enjoy what you're hearing every couple of weeks, then please take a second, tell a couple of friends, show them how to download, show them how to subscribe. It would really help us all out. Thanks for listening and back to the show. So before the break, we were talking about serialization versus episodic. And I think this is a good time to circle us back around to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because that is what is on tap currently, you know, moving into the Avengers Endgame premiere. And the thing I want to talk about is the superhero narrative just in general in our culture, 
And the reason I bring this up is because some of us offline, mostly through Facebook interactions or, uh, you know, seeing each other in person or whatever, most of us in our circle of scholars have come across this clip from Real Time with Bill Maher. It, it was a clip, and then he wrote a blog post, and then there was another clip, and then Twitter blew up and buried him in a giant hole and shoveled nine feet of dirt on top of him. And I want to talk about it with scholars, because we've heard a lot from general fandom, from lay people, from people in other forms of media talking about what happened, but... I haven't really heard anyone who does this for a living talk about what happened. So can someone set it up for us? I believe as we were ramping this thing up that Shannon had most of the history of it. So if Shannon, you could set us up and then we'll kick it around a little bit. Sure. So the first, when he did a real time, I mean, sorry, he did a, a new rules segment on superhero movies in general and how dumb they were and how it's just the same story over and over again and how that obsession with the superhero story led to, for example, the election of Donald Trump because we're just looking for this lone man to swoop in and solve all our problems because we can't solve them for ourselves. So we're looking for this sort of strong man. He then wrote a blog post uh, on the Real Time blog talking about how all these people obsessed with superheroes need to grow up because it's something you should have given up at the time of puberty. And basically the whole thing was about how everybody into superheroes just needs to grow up and start reading books without pictures. And But then in the last sentence, he said, this obsession with superheroes is responsible for the election of Donald Trump. <laughs> Oh, and it was all in the wake of the death of Stan Lee. All and right. then he had, so that was, seemed particularly gross. And then people got very upset over that. And paparazzi apparently kept shouting to him, wanting him to explain like, oh, why do you hate Stan Lee or whatever? And so we did another new rules segment about how everybody needs to grow up, how adulting is a thing. You know, everybody's impressed by their adulting skills. And we're all just perpetual children watching superhero movies, playing with our, you know, superhero dolls. And so my thing is, they're actually, they're two very different questions that he's tackling here, if you want to give him that credit. One of them is the role of superheroes in culture and how our obsession with superheroes is leading us to elect Trump-like figures. And the other one is everybody needs to grow up and get over their superhero obsession. And those are two different things that kind of got collapsed. And when we were talking about Bill Maher and superheroes and Stan Lee, for example. So there's my history of it. There's so much to unpack here. There's so much to unpack. First of all, Bill Maher is the problem that we have in this culture when someone is good at one thing and we pretend that means they're good at everything. Mm. Bill Maher is a great observational comedian. That does not make him an expert on just about anything. Like culture. Like culture. He has a very loud microphone and a very small amount of knowledge, which makes it problematic. He does touch upon a thing that is a very important concept to the way that we look at particularly American popular culture, which is this thing called the monomyth, the American monomyth. And the monomyth essentially is the way that we see the hero in America. I know I've done a lot about the monomyth. I know Dustin's done a lot about the monomyth. So, uh, oh, and Shannon, I have two. you have as well. So, <laughs> and, Rick Stevens. Um, and Rick Stevens, who could not be with us today. So I'll turn it over to Dustin and Shannon to sort of explicate the monomyth. And then I'll jump in if there's something missing. So the original monomyth is a thing that we see that we, we typically call the hero's journey, which is the basis for almost any adventure story throughout any culture. Could we have a very specific version of that in which there is always some sort of hero who resides outside of the society? 
the retired sheriff who lives outside of town is a gunslinger. And people come to him and say, look, criminals are running roughshod over the town. And he says, no, I don't want to get involved. That's not me anymore. I don't want to do this. And eventually the criminals push him too far, usually by going after his friend or going after his woman. Something happens that necessitates his action. And it pulls him in against his better judgment. He doesn't want to get involved, but they left him no choice. So he comes in, cleans house, and then he recedes back into the background. And this, for the most part, has been the template for how we explain American foreign policy, basically since World War I, which is we're minding our own business. We don't want to get involved. But then someone comes along and Pearl Harbor happens or 9-11 happens or something forces us because we're not a warlike people. We're not violent, but... We got pulled into this, even though we didn't want to. And we see that narrative play out through most of the superhero narratives. Spider-Man, for example, where he didn't want to get involved. He avoided catching the criminal, and then it came back to haunt him. And then he had to get involved. He had to become a hero. So that's kind of an overview of the American monomyth. Well, and I think what's key when we're talking about what Bill Maher is talking about is that The idea is that society, with its institutions, it's confronted by some sort of evil, and it can't, its institutions are not enough to confront this evil. It's not enough to neutralize it. They're sort of impotent. And so they need this hero with some kind of special abilities who's outside of society to come in and fix their problems for them. Because the original monomyth stories, American monomyth stories, were Westerns. So you have this idyllic society, something bad happens, there's, you know, some sort of evil villain, and they need this outside gunslinger to come in and they can't solve it with all their talk. All they're just going to do is talk. So they need this man of action to come in and just not deal with institutions and stop deliberating about it and just fix it with action with and, and not talking much and then right off into the sunset, right? So <laughs> what I think what he's saying, what say Bill Maher is saying is that we're looking for that Trump-esque figure to just come in and drain the swamp or whatever, the swamp being us all in our institutions that have just become so bloated and inefficient that we can't deal with anything to come in and just shake it all up and fix it and be a man of action and solve the problems. And then, but the, the point being, that's really anti-democratic. The, the idea being that we can't, we as a society can't come together, can't deliberate. We can't come to a consensus to solve this problem on our own. We're impotent in it. So we need this outside figure to come in. And when we talk about Bill Maher and what he's saying, the truth is, Superhero stories are American monomyth stories. At least that's what they grew out of. He has a point. If you look at it that way, the problem is it's as if Bill Maher has not read a comic book or seen a superhero story since about 1968 because they have moved far beyond that original template. And they're really, they're all about now I feel like I'm getting ahead of what we wanted to talk about. Maybe, but not really, in that I think you're right. Bill Maher does have a point here in that the American monomyth does permeate superhero narratives, but it doesn't just permeate superhero narratives. The American monomyth is the way that we think about being a hero in this culture writ large. Die hard. Every action figure story. The Matrix was a monomyth story, American monomyth story. The Sniper. American Sniper. The Sniper who we made all these movies about who turned out fabricated a lot of his stories. That guy is a monomyth story. So we don't even need to look to comic book narratives to find this one lone hero doing it all for himself. We love that story in this culture. And superhero stories have largely moved on. If you're watching superhero stories, at least in the last 10 years, 15 years, the main point of the story isn't we need this one figure to swoop in and fix everything. It's we have to work together. That tends to be the takeaway from our modern superhero stories. He very specifically calls out shows like Daredevil and Jessica Jones in his rant. Those shows explicitly within the text of those shows 
demonstrate that when those lone heroes operate by themselves, they are failures. They're absolute failures because anyone attempting to solve any kind of problem by themselves is necessarily not as good at it as someone who has help. Exactly. That's the takeaway is that, yeah, I mean, if you look at something like Civil War, you know, there were two different warring factions, but everybody was working together. And that, if you want to talk about the American monomyth, that whole narrative was about the idea that maybe we need government regulation of superheroes. I mean, this, this story has moved so far beyond that original template that what he's saying is ridiculous and it's ridiculous on purpose. I mean, that's what he does. He says things that are just going to shock people and, you know, trend and get people to talk about him. The problem with Bill Mars, like you said, Shannon, he's got two theses here, right? One is that superhero stories are for children. And the other is that superhero stories get us Trump. And he doesn't say American monomyth, but that's clearly what he's complaining about. But the implication that superhero stories and that comic books are for children and that you should leave them behind in your past is sort of antithetical to that other one, which is about how these stories impact us in a very real way. Because he's not exactly wrong about that. Like, we've kind of covered that. He's He's got a little bit of a point, and far be it from me to defend Bill Maher because he is an actual garbage human, but he is a little bit right about that. The thing that he's wrong about, though, is that these stories don't matter and that we should leave them behind and ignore them or relegate them to childhood fantasies because clearly they do resonate with people later into adulthood and especially with Jessica Jones and those Netflix series which unfortunately have been recently canceled they were trying to find a way to update the story for an adult audience and to make it resonate with adult themes and struggles like you said it's like he hasn't watched any of this stuff or encountered any of this stuff for like 40 years because it's a very different landscape and the stories that they're telling are very different because they're for a different audience. Well, and it sounds like he hasn't. Yeah. I mean, he was basically saying, yeah, I read comic books when I ran out of Hardy Boys. Oh, like he hasn't consumed any of this stuff. This is the thing that bothers me most about it is how dismissive and condescending the comments were while at the same time saying, look at how these things impact our society. And it's like, if they impact our society, then clearly they matter a little bit, right? So why are you being so dismissive? Well, I mean, to be fair, I think his point was that they shouldn't. Yeah. You know, that our, yes, as Dustin was saying, our foreign policy, we see these narratives in our foreign policy. And I think Bill Maher is saying we shouldn't. So we should just leave them as kids. Now, I mean, on one hand, there are a lot of problems with George Bush and the, you know, we're going to get him dead or alive, clearly calling forth an American monomyth narrative and imposing it on foreign policy. That's not my favorite thing. But you're saying, right, because they are so present, they do go far beyond the walls of popular culture, then we should be talking about them and we should be dealing with them. And we should be dealing with them on a deeper level. And I think we're starting to do that, not so much with the MCU, but with things like Brightburn, which is coming out later this month, I think, which is Superman, but if he were a psychopath. And we've already seen that in comics format with things like Irredeemable, which is the Superman myth. But what happens if he decides that you are the villain, innocent person? And that is a thing that actually questions the idea of a hero and what it means to have that much power. And I think that those narratives that do question power are valuable to our society. Which is why comics have such value, because they are complex. They deal with complex issues. Mm -hmm. And there are many times where they don't actually take a side and they don't tell us what to think. You know, you read the narrative... And however you interpret it is how you interpret it like an adult. And um, as a result of that, you challenge your own way of thinking. And I think that that's where Bill Maher definitely goes off the rails because it's a not unreasonable point to question the American monomyth. I think that he has a very good point there. But for us, people who have read comic books and who study culture 
that was our starting point about three decades ago. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it, it's not that his point is necessarily bad. It's just he's just showing up to an argument that we've been having for nearly four decades. And I really think it's a, an example of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. You have to be a little good at something to know how much you suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> right. he shows up swaggering in like he just noticed this and the rest of us have no idea what we're doing. And when in reality, he's starting where, you know, scholars were 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. That is the most interesting part of his argument to me is his argument is comic books are childish. And my argument is the way you are approaching this conversation is incredibly childish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your points are infantile in the actual conversations people are having about comic book narratives. Mm-hmm. They're so surface, they're so superficial, they're so uninformed. As you said, those are the arguments that were being made 40 years ago because he believes these are just children's stories with pictures because, because he, he hasn't, hasn't read, read one, one since, since he was 13. He was 13. Hmm. Yeah, because I was going to say it's not even just scholars that are having these conversations. Fans engage with their comic book stuff, with comic books and with the films that are based on them, very much on the same level. They're going into it on this deep level a lot of the time, too. So Bill Maher is showing up to the conversation 40 years behind everyone, which is just insane to me. Right, not even scholars, but just the average fan. Just fans. (laughs) Right, I mean... Yeah, I mean, people don't watch daredevil and jessica jones for example because they're stuck as prepubescent people these stories have become so humanized they've had to if marvel was still churning out the same stories that they were from 1962 with you know through the exact same narrative every single time where people were writing comic books were sweatshops and it wasn't about story you know if they were still doing that nobody would pay for it we have to humanize we have to make these stories more complicated and so they become very adult stories that's why we love them that's why we watch them it's not because we're stuck as children it's because the story have grown up with us right and if you're giving your children the original jessica jones yeah. oh, <laughs> a very good point you are the worst parent <laughs> right ever. You're, the, you're you're bad at being a parent <laughs> the other thing i want to say is that he in his little rant he says part of the problem is that we have over 2500 colleges and universities And so we need more professors than we have smart people. So some dumb people got to be professors by writing theses with titles like otherness and heterodoxy in the silver surfer. If you. It's the opposite. This is the opposite of how it works. If you, if you Google otherness and heterodoxy in the silver surfer, you will run across a fantastic article by a guy named Gareth Vile who writes an entire article about otherness and heterodoxy in the Silver Surfer post Bill Maher's rant that is incredibly (laughs) lucid, incredibly intelligent, very well researched, very well supported. And at the end, he says, if more people had read the Silver Surfer, they might have recognized the actions of ignorant groups and not voted for Trump, which is basically the point that we are always trying to make is the more you understand culture, the less it leads to you buying into things like Donald Trump will fix things for you. Which is exactly why we should interrogate these questions. Exactly. Right? Was it, which is exactly why we have jobs in universities. It's not because we're <laughs> idiots. You know what, you guys, I, I've changed my mind. He's convinced me I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> he has convinced me I'm a very dumb person who should not have been yeah. a professor. I'm wasting my time. I'm going to go work for the government. I'm going to I'm going to read adult things, things made for adult like 50 right. shades of gray. I th- oh my, I was going to say the exact same thing. I was going to say the exact same Which thing. Which is infinitely <laughs> smarter than anything I've read in Silver Surfer. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to cancel Bill Maher, let's Let's do it for him saying the N-word on his show in a joke about slavery and not for this just a really condescending take about comic books. 
Bill Maher's garbage. But I think that there's something in there that at least we can have a conversation about. But he is far from the best person to bring attention to the issue of, does popular culture affect how we think about the world? Dude, it's 2019. You are not the first person to think of this. Yeah, that is not exactly a hot take there. And Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it's easy to say Bill Maher is a garbage person, but it's also easy to find all the garbage things that he's done that would lead someone to call him a garbage person. For example, one time he basically came out and said pedophilia is okay as long as it's a young boy and it's a lady teacher and she's really hot. He is a vaccine skeptic. Oof. He's not quite anti-vax, but he is skeptical that vaccines work, which is enough to put you on the garbage human being list for me. Agreed. Just in general. So the terrible take that he has on Stan Lee and on comic books pale in comparison to all the other terrible things that he has done besides this. Yeah, like comparing children with learning disabilities to dogs. Yeah. Or saying that he admired Sean Connery when Sean Connery said it's okay to slap a woman around a bit. Yeah. No, he's really the worst. Mm -hmm. I feel like Bill Maher is the type of person who gets very upset at reading the headline of something, but doesn't actually read the article. Or watch Mm -hmm. the uh, superhero movie. (laughs) Yeah. That he's going to bash. It's the easiest, laziest take based on the bare minimum of information. Which, coincidentally, is how we elect someone like Trump. On the other hand, it's not so much his opinion about superhero comics and movies, which, let's be honest, we've all heard plenty of times. It's boring. I I honestly skip right past it most of the time. It's, first of all, the timing of doing it right after Stanley's death, and then the fact that after a bunch of people criticized him and said, no, you're wrong, here's all of this evidence of why you're wrong, he doubled down and made the blog post about it without actually having changed his mind. He just wrote down his same opinions from his show. And he just shows this capacity to not learn anything that is honestly a little bit Which is the ironic thing is because he is complaining about how other people are childish. But here is a guy who almost never faces consequences Mm -hmm. for anything. The one time that he did, they took his show away from him Mm -hmm. because he said things about the 9-11 hijackers and ABC canceled his show. But almost immediately, he got a show on HBO. And he's not faced any consequences ever since mm-hmm. for anything, you know, all of the times that he's been wrong about things. And how do you grow from that? He's still doing the same jokes that he did 20 years ago. The same format, same you know, cadence even. So you can understand how I might be less than enthused about taking criticism from Bill Maher as a scholar. Right. (laughs) When I was coming up, there was this bit by Chris Rock. One of his favorite things in the world are people who love to not know. Nothing makes people happier than not knowing the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's Bill Maher. He doesn't know a thing. He's proud to not know that thing. And he's very much willing to die on the hill of, this is a thing I don't know and I don't need to know, even as people are destroying him for not knowing. Right, which goes back to that Dunning-Kruger effect, which is which says that you know you have to know a, at least a little bit about something to, to be able to converse with it. And what typically tends to happen, and I... Uh, you know, ironically, out of all of this, I keep saying ironically because it just is, is that that sort of attitude that Bill Maher has, that is what got Donald Trump elected. If I don't know this thing, then this thing is not worth knowing right. about. So I have no intellectual curiosity about it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I'm still going to act like I do. I'm still going to pretend to be like the authority on it. About it. And there's kind of this perception that these are things that are so obvious that they're not worth looking into and that the people that do dedicate time to this kind of stuff, and this is something that you encounter every time you tell someone your major is pop culture, is why would you do that? What is that? Just watching TV? It's like, I'm already an expert on that because that's so easy. So that's kind of, I think, part of why you don't have to have intellectual curiosity Which is also why some of my favorite people to have in my popular culture class are business majors and engineering majors. Um, Who think they know everything already. Who think they know literally anything at all. 
to be quite <laughs> to be quite honest. And to just watch over the course of sixteen weeks how far in the dust they get left by people who actually do study culture. So, my friends, we could do this all day. But I think we have probably reached a point where we need to ask our question, so what? And I'm not even really sure what the so what question is for today. Is it so what binging? Is it so what Bill Maher? Is it so... I don't know what the so what is today, but our conversation for the day. So what? At the end of the day, when we're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe specifically, it is a thing that has become the cultural touchstone. I know in a previous podcast, we had talked about maybe the MCU supplants what Harry Potter was for the previous generation as that cultural touchstone that everyone knows about. And I think that that is definitely true, especially in the way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has changed the way that we consume media. It did shift the medium that it was a part of, which is something that arguably Harry Potter did on the same level. There's also this kind of idea that every MCU release is a cultural event that you have to be part of. And that kind of brings me back to the serialization conversation that we were having earlier, because I don't know that it's part of, it's necessarily all of these movies are part of a serialized story with one arc. But it's more about motivating the audience to go to the next whatever. Whatever the next film is, you have to be there for, or else you're behind. Uh, So I think that's kind of what we have to consider with the MCU, is how it's changed this way that people consume film media and kind of put people back in theaters. Each event, each... uh movie is an event that you have to consume unless you're Bill Maher because he's better than all of us. (laughs) I guess at the end of the day, I mean, since we are all in, in theory employed doing this and apparently you don't even need a degree if you just need a good social media account to get paid to watch Marvel movies. I think that proves that whether or not it's childish, it's definitely a part of our culture and has influence on our culture that even Bill Maher has a hard time denying, but I guess bless him for trying. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily always a good influence. Like we talked about the American monomyth can be damaging, but that doesn't mean we all should just put all this stuff aside and go, you know, live our lives as adults. It means we should be interrogating it and talking about it and talking about what we want from it and we don't want from it and what it does well and what it could be doing better. And because these stories are not children's stories, they are now adult stories and they very much affect the world around us as a whole. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the so what for me is both don't jump into fights you're not qualified to compete in, Mm. but also (laughs) these comic book narratives the way that they're told the subject matter they're about the connection audiences have to them the way that we can deconstruct the messaging within comic book narratives are far more sophisticated than people who don't read or consume comic book narratives can possibly imagine they're far more nuanced they are far more adventurous. They're much more willing to take on lots of themes that quote unquote adult media either refuses to take on or takes on poorly. We didn't even unpack any of what's actually in much of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is not just guy gets some powers and then goes try to find a glowy thing. That That is how Bill Maher categorized <laughs> comic book films. I invite him to watch The Watchmen. (laughs) There's so much more going on here. And it's easy to be dismissive of popular culture because we believe consumption is the same thing as critical consumption. And it's not. Um, And as long as it's not, the five of us will continue to have jobs. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And I want to work myself out of a job. I've said this before. I want to get it to a point where everybody is as critical of their popular culture as I am. I want everybody to engage critically with their media. So um, 
you know, if I get my way, we'll all be out of the job. I will stop studying othering when people stop othering. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So, for Dustin Dunaway and Marley Wilford and Natalie Shepard and Shannon Sindorf, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. We will see you in two weeks. Thank you to all of our guest workers today for joining me. Thank you, Dr. Bell. Thank you. This was great. Have a good rest of your day. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.